Hello, Pulse Check listeners. This is Dan Diamond. And welcome to our special Pulse Check series on the coronavirus, where we're pulling out some of our coverage on this outbreak and explaining how it's shaping politics and policy, both now and in all the moments that led up to now. Today, I'm in conversation with my colleague, Jeremy Siegel, who hosts the great daily podcast for Politico, Dispatch. And we trace how three different presidential administrations spanned two decades of preparing, or not, for the possibility of a pandemic, and how that set up the moment that we're facing today. It draws a lot on a story that I did over the weekend on America's two-decade failure to prepare for the coronavirus. Here's that conversation. Dan, where were you 20 years ago? Uh, what were you doing? What were you watching? What were you listening to? Who were you? 20 years ago, I was probably sitting in a college apartment in West Philadelphia, uh, skipping class and watching <laughs> a soap opera with one of my roommates, Grant Martzolf, who's who's now an esteemed healthcare professor at at Pitt, but back then was very good at playing video games. Uh, we watched a soap opera called Passions. Well, I guess I better cancel my flight to Paris. Which was horrible, but but when you're a college student at 10.30 in the morning and you don't want to go to class, <laughs> uh, it, it became a um, daily routine. But Jeremy, something tells me that you weren't in college 20 years ago. I would have been right around six years old, I think, at that time. My cool older brother was probably introducing me to Oakley sunglasses, um, hair gel, um, the at the time awesome, but now probably pretty embarrassing music of Blink-182. Um, so I was probably sitting in the basement of my parents' house with my older brother, just rocking out to those tunes with some awesome sunglasses on <laughs> and and gelled hair uh it sounded like you had the total package yeah i think like if you put a hand to the top of my head at that point it, it would have it literally would have cut your hand i mean like these these were literal spikes <laughs> on the top of my head <laughs> so Dan, the reason I am asking about 20 years ago is that you had this big investigation come out this week about how around the same time when you were sitting in your college dorm room playing video games, I was sitting in my basement listening to music with my brother. Some officials in the White House were preparing for a serious pandemic like we're seeing right now at this exact moment. And others in the White House, though, were ignoring it. I mean, I want to get into some of this story that you wrote, but first I'm curious, why did you focus on that chapter of recent history when, I mean, there's just so much going on right now? Jeremy, I think that a theme of the current reporting is how much of what we are doing to fight this pandemic, this COVID-19 outbreak, has its roots in what happened 20 years ago, uh, including all the way back to the Bush administration's efforts to fight bioterror. And there are parallels between the country fighting this crisis and the moment in time after the terrorist attacks in 2001. Well, take us inside of the Bush White House. What was going on there at this time? In 2001, the Bush administration was trying to find its footing. The big issue in the health department across the summer of 2001 wasn't pandemics, it was stem cell research. 
Tommy Thompson, he was the health secretary at the time. He was the Alex Azar of 2001. Tommy Thompson hadn't really done much or had any expertise in emergency preparedness or pandemic flu. In fact, several former officials at HHS told me that Secretary Thompson was set to have one of his first pandemic preparedness briefings uh, on the morning of September 11th. Then everything changed that day. His agenda changed, the health department's focus and mission changed, the country changed. Almost immediately, preparedness, biohazards, those became top priorities for HHS, which recruited new staff, like a scientist named D.A. Henderson, who had fought smallpox. And those fears were worsened days later with the anthrax attacks that were mailed out to news outlets and lawmakers. Uh, and, and several people died, including a pair of D.C. postal workers. There were real fears of domestic terrorism. So, I mean, did these fears like lead to any preemptive planning at the time for, you know, things beyond bio attacks, like for things, you know, like the pandemic we're seeing right now? So the story gets into this a bit. The idea that HHS needed a dedicated office to work on emergency preparedness issues. And that's where D.A. Henderson and a bunch of other new hires, scientists, military experts came into play. They worked on early pandemic plans. And one big focus across 2002, 2003, was the idea of smallpox vaccination. This, this was a fear that Vice President Cheney had that there would be an attack using smallpox on America in some way, maybe on our soldiers on the front lines, possibly even on the homeland as a follow-up terror attack. The administration then ramped up a plan to vaccinate some, if not all, Americans against smallpox. And this, this was something that health officials were really worried about, because if you roll out a massive vaccination campaign, you have to be sure that the side effects from those vaccinations aren't going to also cause new problems. And D.A. Henderson was one of the scientists who was really worried that there would be, on a massive scale of vaccination, uh, complications, potentially in children. So he warned President Bush not to go through with a national plan. And it appears President Bush listened to him and, and other scientists and, and stood down uh, when, with a more limited vaccination plan. And then more notably, Bush and his health team pursued a plan to fight pandemic flu back in 2005. And, and officials like Mike Levitt, the health secretary at the time who followed Secretary Thompson, and a deputy named Alex Azar ended up playing a major role in rolling out that new plan to fight pandemic influenza. So this is the same Alex Azar who's now working for President Trump in the Bush administration, working on planning for something that sounds almost exactly like what we're seeing right now. It is one in the same. It is an Alex Azar who, in the Bush administration, cut his teeth on these issues before joining the health department. He was not a healthcare expert. But as the top lawyer at the health department for four years, and then as the top deputy to the secretary, Azar took a major role in crafting those plans and learning the lessons of preparedness. One former official told me that Azar had a binder of many tabs, essentially all the emergency plans you'd ever need if there was an emergency. This was a guy who really lived the idea of being prepared for whatever was coming around the corner. And now that we are in the middle of a pandemic that Azar and others 
had planned for, had warned about, those plans in the Bush administration are helping inform what the Trump administration is doing today. So I want to get more into, you know, how this leads to what we're seeing right now under the Trump administration. But first, I know you also talked with officials in the Obama White House who who took over these pandemic planning efforts after after the Bush administration. What did they do next? Well, I, I think it's both what did they do and what didn't they do. And one thing that the Obama team did right away that might surprise listeners the Obama team came in and dissolved the White House office on healthcare uh, preparedness and security. This is something that Bush did when his team took over the White House. Clinton had had an office of global health security that Bush dissolved. And it's the same decision that Trump would get castigated for years later. Uh, th- this is a constant theme that a new administration comes in and for whatever reason decides they know how to do this better. They don't need all the same offices and trappings and staffing that the previous administration did. But thinking in the Obama White House changed quickly because there was a flu. There there was a pandemic, the H1N1 pandemic flu, in 2009 into 2010. And that taught the Obama team that a preparedness plan wasn't just a necessary feature. it, it, It was a needed tactic to fight the pandemic that they were facing. H1N1 led to a number of investments, improvements across the health department, some of which came into play later in the Obama administration when the Ebola outbreak ravaged West Africa and came to the United States. The handling of that outbreak, the handling of Ebola, was not seen as perfect, even by Obama officials. I talked to a few who admitted they did not move as quickly as they would have liked to contain that outbreak, partly because it was unprecedented. Ebola didn't normally move the way that that outbreak did, where it jumped across country borders. Normally, it burned itself out. But the combination of the H1N1 fight at the beginning of the administration, the Ebola outbreak at the end of the administration, led the Obama team to not only have this pandemic preparedness unit inside the White House, but they crafted the pandemic playbook, which we talked about on our previous podcast, this this step-by-step guide that was supposed to help the next president, whether Trump, Hillary Clinton, whoever, help the next president avoid all of the pitfalls that the Obama administration ran into. So then President Trump takes office in 2017. He's had two presidents before him prepare for pandemics. One of them is handing off a playbook of how to deal with pandemics. What happens then? The Trump administration has gotten a lot of criticism for getting these handoffs and not doing enough with them. We have written some of the big stories here. In addition to the pandemic playbook, uh, Hal Tuzzi, Daniel Littman, and I wrote the story on the Trump team getting briefed in a pandemic exercise at the beginning of 2017. Most of those officials ended up leaving the administration. And some of the officials who were there, like Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, either were disinterested or some said that Ross fell asleep during that briefing. So it's fair to say that pandemic preparedness was not a top-of-mind issue for most Trump incoming appointees in 2017. One official who took it very seriously was a guy named Tom Bossert. He was Trump's Homeland Security Advisor. He had worked on pandemic preparedness during the Bush administration. He had been a top deputy working on the pandemic flu plan. So Bossert was, was a big believer that the U.S. had to be prepared for this fight. 
unfortunately for Bossert, he was dismissed from the White House a little over a year later when John Bolton came in as the new national security advisor. So by the time the coronavirus outbreak arrived this year, some of the officials who were best prepared to fight it had already left. And officials like Alex Azar, who who had taken lessons from his experience in the Bush administration, who had warned the president back in January that this was going to be an urgent issue, Alex Azar was also politically weak. As, as listeners of Pulse Check will know, he had fought and, and lost some battles with the White House. He had fought and, and been enmeshed in a survival fight with Seema Verma at CMS. So he was not playing uh, the strongest hand when he went to the White House and tried to convince Trump to take politically risky moves to prepare to fight the coronavirus outbreak. But as, as things have unfolded the past few months, it's pretty clear that Azar and his deputies if you're looking at the right side of history for who was trying to warn the president, they will be on that side of the ledger, even though Azar and his team also clearly failed on some other things like just getting the country ready. It's a complicated story, and, and that's why that's why the story from this weekend was 5,700 words long. It's, it's, it's hard to boil down who was right, who was wrong on preparedness, because doing this kind of work is so freaking hard, where you don't know what's coming around the corner— and if, if you warn too loud, no one takes you seriously. If you don't warn enough, then people will die. Tracing these responses over three administrations, over 20 years, the past two decades, what do you think we can learn from all of this about the response to the coronavirus pandemic right now? So, Jeremy, I think the shame of it is in the middle of a crisis, there's probably less to learn than either in the buildup to a moment like this, when officials are sounding alarms or trying to get ready, or alternately after, when we have a clearer picture of what went right, what went wrong, and how to learn and, and copy that. But it's clear to me, after interviewing officials across the past three administrations, the value of practice, of getting the muscle memory of knowing who to call, what are the decisions we have to make, how many supplies do we have, and who is in charge of ramping that up. Those sorts of things can happen very easily in a down moment. And one big frustration that I heard again and again was the United States went through this massive planning exercise two years ago for an emergency. This happens every two years. FEMA calls together different government offices. And this isn't just a sit in a room and you know point at a blackboard and figure out what you're going to do hypothetically. This is a, a role-playing scenario where people are scattering around the DC area, they're making calls, they're kind of acting out what they would need to do. What they ended up acting out was a scenario where a hurricane struck DC, a big hurricane. What would happen? How would you respond to that disaster? The problem was the federal government had already done that in real life. They'd responded to three big hurricanes in 2017, just a few months beforehand. And officials were confused, as I think any of us would be. Why are we spending all of our time role-playing this hypothetical situation when we have all this real-world experience? And I talked to officials who said, we should have used that time to practice for a possible pandemic. We were overdue. And some said they raised those complaints at the time. The issue being that the bureaucracy had moved so far along on planning this other hypothetical hurricane exercise. But what I have heard again and again is if we have more tabletop exercises, just people sitting in a room and deciding how are we going to allocate 
ventilators. How are we going to decide when to sound the alarm on pandemics? That would train those senior leaders to know what to do when the moment arrives. That is a simple fix. I think moving forward too, the Trump administration famously, and Michael Lewis wrote about this in his book, The Fifth Risk, the Trump administration famously turned away opportunities to learn from their Obama predecessors. That's a bad way to run government. Government does not stop between one administration and another. Lisa Monaco, who was President Obama's top Homeland Security advisor, gave me a quote that I didn't use in the story, but she said, threats to the homeland, terror threats, don't take a break between January 19th and January 20th, referencing the inauguration. And I think when it comes to health, when it comes to national security, there probably should be more of a constant line even more than we already have, that avoids the partisan battles and focuses on protecting Americans. That's our show for today. I'm Dan Diamond, and my thanks to colleague Jeremy Siegel, who hosts the Politico Dispatch podcast, for joining me for our weekly check-in. Our producers are Annie Reese and Jeremy Siegel, Jenny Ament is our senior producer, and Irene Noguchi is our executive producer. You can find Politico Pulse Check by searching on your favorite podcast app. You can help us by going there and leaving a rating or review. That helps new listeners find the show. You can follow our coverage of the coronavirus in our Politico newsletters. One comes out every evening. It's called the Politico Nightly. And then I co-author the one in the morning, Politico Pulse. Thanks so much for listening, and we will be back with a new episode of Pulse Check very soon.